HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. I am the host of Cooking Issues, Dave Arnold, here with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Brooklyn, New York. Coming to you every Tuesday from approximately 12 to 12.45. Call on all of your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Actually, Nastasha prefers the non-cooking-related questions, right? I do. I prefer issues. Yeah, she, she prefers just straight-up issues. And if you knew her better, uh, you'd see why. Today's... <laughs> today, come on now, right? Today's episode is brought to you by the Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscapes. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. That's www.hearstranch.com. Hey, Nastasha, anything uh, interesting happened this week? Yeah. What? I can't. Oh, you can't divulge? <laughs> no. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm intrigued. Do I know this stuff? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel like I, I feel like I'm being left uh, over hanging. pizza. Over pizza. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> well, for all of you out there in internet land, I'm gonna get the real skinny when it comes to pizza time. By the way, the payment we get for doing this fabulous show every week is a pizza and a salad. Correct? Yes. Yes. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> Not that we, not that that's not good enough payment, Jack. Just talking and to our Dr. engineer. Dr. Pepper. Oh, uh, di- and a diet, diet, diet. No, not diet. Regular, regular Dr. Pepper for you. Yeah, okay. Okay, here come the questions. From Andrew Cummings. Hi, Dave and Nastasha. I really like all the stuff you do, apart from providing me with tons of ideas. I think he must be from England. Oh, Australia, I guess he said, right? Because he spells tons in the British fashion. Mm. Hmm. Uh, reading your articles and listening to your radio show, uh, keep my passion for food going. Well, thank you. He's a food technologist. A, a, an honorable profession when done right. right. When done right. An honor, very honorable profession when done right. Uh, he's wondering if I can tell him anything about cinnamon and its gelling effects. A couple of years ago, he was working for a chocolatier uh, at a small boutique store and saw that the liquid comp, uh, components in Panforte, which is a delicious kind of, it's weird kind of candy dense sweet from Siena. I actually like it. Do you like it? I don't know it. You know, it's that really dense, dark with all the nuts and the candy fruit in it. It's got the, it's got the wafer paper on the bottom, and it, it stays good forever, and you slice it into discs, no. uh, into wedges. Is it like a caramelly? No, it's not. Imagine like a fruit cake without the cake. 
Anyway, um, but it's, it's real dense. Anyway, uh, sorry, sorry for interrupting the middle of your question there, uh, Andrew. Um, so he was making some panforte, and uh, the stuff had turned into a thick slime. And he asked his boss about it, and he said it happens whenever he adds a cinnamon. And he looked around on the internet for some explanation as why cinnamon would cause this kind of gelling effect, but could find no academic papers on it. I'm guessing it's probably some polysaccharide uh, similar to what's in gum Arabic, but he'd like to know uh, if it can be extracted and used as a future gelling agent. Well, I was not uh, able to find uh, any information on that, although there is a polysaccharide in cinnamon that some nut job has named uh, cinnamon AX polysaccharide that has some sort of BS health benefit or something like that, but it doesn't say anything about its gelling properties. I doubt it's um, exactly similar to gum arabic, because gum arabic isn't just, it's not a bark phenomenon, it's a, uh, it's a sap phenomenon, so gum arabic is a mix of protein, a small amount of protein, and gum sap, um, although there could be some residual stuff in the bark, and the, clearly there are many barks that are used for thickening, for instance, uh, you know, filet powder, uh, which, is that the leaves of the bark? I always forget. Anyways, so yeah, yes, obviously there's probably some sort of... Um, some sort of gelling agent. Another thing is panforte is very, very thick and usually uses a, a boiled sugar component. So it's probably close to gumming up on you anyway. So the addition of anything that's going to absorb water and have any sort of polysaccharide or water binding effect might cause it to, to gum up. But um, I'm interested in this. I'm going to ask McGee if I have... McGee. McGee. I'm going to ask uh, McGee uh, next time I speak to him if I can remember. An interesting thing is, is that... Um, Cassia, not regular cinnamon, but cassia, uh, has in it uh, coumarin, which is an anticoagulant. So the exact opposite of making things thick, making things thin. Anyway, I was not able to find anything, but uh, I'm going to keep my uh, ears out for that. And anyone else, if you hear anything about it or have had experience, please write in and tell us because we're interested in that sort of thing. Okay, I'm going to go on to hello from Adam. Adam has a bacon-related question that he hopes we can help him with. You think so? Baking. Baking. You think we can help? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, okay. Uh, this is actually a pretty complicated one, so I'm just going to read it straight out. He said, you know, there are plenty of situations where you need to hydrate a dough to work, uh, to work it, but where uh, the gluten formation is the enemy. For instance, pie dough, biscuits, scones, cakes, cookies, etc. To keep the gluten under control, you usually use low-protein flour, avoid overworking, uh, and then add a lot of a fat. And the fat basically is, is coating the, uh, the flour particles and preventing uh, the, the water from forming gluten. Okay. So, and recently he's read about uh, experimenting replacing water in a, pastry recipe, uh, in a pastry crust recipe with vodka, since apparently alcohol doesn't have the gluten-activating properties that water does, uh, producing, hypothetically producing a crust with even less chewiness than usual. This is true. Uh, this is not only for pie crust, this is also for batters. So, I mean, the famous examples uh, in pie crust land would probably be America's Test Kitchen, uh, Chris Kimball's... Um, you know, his show, that he's Cook's Illustrated guy, where they have their uh, pastry, uh, their, their pie crust recipe that includes a good portion of vodka in it. Uh, it does two things. One, allows you to add more uh, liquid so that you can make it a little more, it's not, as, uh, it's not as flaky, it doesn't come apart in your hands. It volatilizes off and doesn't form a lot of gluten, so it can be rolled without it getting tough, right? So that's one application. Uh, the second famous one is probably Heston Blumenthal's uh, fish and chips batter, where he will add vodka to the batter, to prevent sort of gluten formation to make it stay crisp without it getting tough at all, without the batter getting tough at all, and without having to add a lot of extra, uh, you know, uh, starch binders other than flour to get it to be uh, where he wants. So these are two very well-known applications of uh, alcohol being used as the, well, hydrate's the wrong word because it's not 
water, but you know what I'm saying, to give the dough some sort of plasticity. So uh, anyway, so uh, he goes on and he says, it sounds like the holy uh, grail of pastry crust is a dough with no gluten formation whatsoever. I wonder what would happen if you inhibit uh, gluten formation entirely with the starch still being in granular form. I think you'd still want the granules to be hydrated to some extent, even if they're just swelling and sitting uh, together in an extremely delicate array with little uh, intergranule entanglement so that you're not eating something that's going to turn it to dust when you uh, bite down on it. Well, okay. Zero gluten formation, uh, 100% zero gluten formation is actually quite problematic because it means the dough is extremely hard to work. This is why uh, it's very difficult to work many gluten-free recipes, right? So if you're going to make – I mean people do make uh, pie crusts and whatnot exclusively out of things like potato flour and rice flour for gluten-free recipes, uh, but these doughs are typically extremely hard to handle, the same way that non-flour dumpling wrappers are hard to handle. And the way that those are usually solved is you will pre-cook – pre-boil a portion of your starch so that the starch will entangle itself a little bit to give you a little bit of structure so that you can then uh, form it into a workable dough. So a little bit of gluten formation uh, can be helpful for or is always helpful usually in in formation of dough, not so much in batters. Uh, So in batters, it's not as as big of a deal. But anyway, so he he goes on and his his last thing he's positing, he's saying, a while ago I was talking about the free saw stability of gelling agents and this came to mind. What if we had a gel that had poor heat stability so that uh, the gel is holding on to most of the water when you're forming the dough, but when it's heated, the gel loses uh, its hold on the water and allows it to seep into the flour um, and that would control the shape of baked goods and make it so that it had a fairly high water content uh, without it having a lot of gluten formation. Well, I'm not sure if that would actually be uh, useful or not, but if you wanted to experiment with it, uh, because in, in general, like very, very low water formation things still are delicious. The classic example is shortbread, which is basically, you know, you take uh, of butter and sugar and a tiny bit of flour and just barely get it to hold together and you bake it. And is there anything more delicious than shortbread? No. No? You like it? I know. Do you, li- you don't like it? I don't really like it. You don't like shortbread? Mm-mm. No. What? It's like hardtack. Are you nuts? Who made your shortbread? My Who mom. made your shortbread? My mom. Jeez, my God. Shortbread like hardtack? Yeah. My God. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry for that outburst. Uh, all right, listen. We have a caller, but I'm going to tell you, uh, first, try an agar fluid gel. If you want to get something that's going to hold on to water, but at the, closer to the boiling point, will will melt out. Kappa carrageenan won't form a fluid gel, so you can't use it even though it's going to melt at a lower temperature. Hardtack, indeed. <laughs> caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. I love the show, by the way. Lots and lots of useful hints. Uh, I have a couple questions uh, about hydrocolloids. All right. Uh, specifically, I've been using agar and uh, guar gum together, sorry, xanthan and guar gum to stabilize emulsions. Right. And I was wondering, do you have any tips for making them heat resistant, particularly like a hollandaise or a beurre blanc? Okay. Who, what guar are you using? Uh, it's just, just this guar gum on it. I got it from Will Powder. Okay, I don't know which, um, Will's a good guy. Taste it. If it has a bad taste to it, it means he's sourcing, and there's no offense to him because I don't know what he's sourcing, but he's sourcing an inexpensive guar, uh, and if that has a beanie taste to it, this is before I answer your question, if it has a beanie kind of off taste to it, you're going to want to call a company called TIC Gums, uh, and get their, theirs, which is called uh, Guar Flavor. It's Flavor Free Guar NT2000 or some crap like that, but it's Flavor Free Guar. And that stuff's awesome, right? That stuff's really good. Now, Will might be sourcing that. So if you taste his Guar uh, and, it, and it tastes okay, then I'd, I'd stick, stick with it. Uh, but if it does have kind of an off taste to you, then um, I'd look into getting another Guar. Now, what specific problems are you having with, with stability using that system? 
Well, what it is is it's at a, a, a reasonable temperature. It uh, it's very very stable, more stable than any hollandaise or bourbon making. Sure. But I want something that I can pour onto the plate, like at the same heat that I would pour like a demi glace or any other typical hot sauce. But when I get up to those temperatures, you know, like the sixty neighborhood, they the water uh, won't help it, and it just splits eventually. So even at sixty, even at sixty degrees. Well, no, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't being that precise with my with my measurements because I'm not keeping it in a circulator. I was keeping it, trying to keep it just in the traditional steam table where you don't have that sort of control. So I was wondering, like, I have methylcellulose. Is there any other products that, or, or combinations or percentages that that will increase the uh, the heat resistance? Well, methylcell is the problem with methylcell is methylcell gels when it gets hot, so it's going to get firm and it's not going to stay pourable. I'm surprised. Right. So when you heat guar, what happens is um, guar loses some of its thickening power. It doesn't get damaged in any way. When it cools down, it will come back to its thickness. But guar loses uh, a bit of its thickness as it gets heated up, uh, unlike xanthan, which loses its, uh, which only loses a very little bit of its uh, um, abilities when, it, when it's heated up. Now, uh, I wouldn't want to thicken the, uh, the guar at all because – I mean add more guar because A, you're going to start tasting guar and, and B, it's going to get too thick when it gets cold. Um, I'm wondering whether the heat – the damage is actually happening to the egg proteins in it. Right. In which well, case that's you- it. It's like I'm to keep it as as more like a traditional Holland. Well, at first I was doing hollandaise uh, that style. Then I I tried doing Berblanc and I had good results with both. But I'm trying to keep that uh, original uh, hollandaise Berblanc texture. And I thought if I if I brought my percentages too high, it, it became a bit too well gummy. You know what I mean? Right. So I was wondering if because already I found that doing the xanthan and the guar together made good results. I was wondering if there was a third guy. Um, to bring in there um, that might bring some of that, yeah. that heat resistance without bringing my percentages too high. Triple gum systems can be difficult because uh, you can have multiple interactions with things. So what, what you, you, basically, you don't have an emulsifier in there. What you, you, the only emulsifier you have are the, uh, well, the egg in the one and the, and the milk solids in the other. So um, you know, both the guar and the xanthan, the guar is acting basically as a, as a thickening agent to prevent the, the particles from glomming together, and the, and the xanthan is acting as a weak gelling agent when it's not being stirred, right? And so that's basically your stabilization system. You might want to move to an added emulsifier. So uh, mm-hmm. a good one in this choice might be gum arabic, right? So instead of using xanthan, we use a mix of gum arabic and xanthan called tickaloid. They're, they're also from TIC Gums. Tickaloid 310S and Tickaloid 210S, and it's a, basically it's a mix of xanthan and gum arabic. Gum arabic is going to act as your as your emulsifier, right? And then um, the and the and the xanthan is going to act as your stabilizer and as a weak gelling agent when you're not stirring and sitting on the seam table. I've made butter syrups, just butter syrups with that, that will sit on your bench or get heated indefinitely without breaking. So then, if you're having further problems with breaking, you can add something like guar or even a starch to something like egg yolk to prevent the egg yolk proteins from being able to, 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 uh, to coagulate and, uh, um, you know, and turn crappy on you. So I would move to, I would try a system of, of gum arabic and xanthan, and an easy premix one is a Tickaloy uh, 210 or 310S, which they'll sell to you or sample out to you, uh, and, or just get 
commercially available gum arabic and add it into that because i think what you need is to add an actual emulsifier and the, the good the good news about the gum arabic is it's fairly stable over a wide range of heats and it's also fairly stable over a wide range of dilution so if you were to then suddenly use a, a like f- like f- like you could even fortify a liquid into that beurre blanc to to, to uh, thin it out a little bit and it would still hold its sauce consistency so it acts uh, it's a lot more friendly than a traditional beurre blanc, and it could make you could have like a base there that would be useful for a lot of different recipes. Right, right, great. So uh, gum arabic definitely sounds like the uh, the next thing I need to try. Uh, can I hit you with one more quick one before I go? Sure. The uh, I heard you talking about uh, gum uh, like candies just a second ago, and I was actually planning on doing a wedding where I was going to have candies at the end. What product is the best one to use to get that that sour patch kids kind of stretchy? Uh, jellies. Well, so like the classic American ones, you want an American Sour Patch Kid? Those are gelatin. That's just straight up gelatin. Uh, and then See, the- I, was, I was using that. Now, it was getting like more kind of solid cuttable before it was getting stretchy. Well, what, the- what am I doing wrong? Um, I mean, I haven't, I haven't uh, it's been a long time since I've worked with anything like that. I've never gotten really good results. They, but they, from everything I've read, like the, the, the gummy bears are starch molded. And so it's all about getting, uh, you know, that's why they have that poured looking back because they're molded into starch, right? So it's like, it's, it's all about getting your moisture levels right and just not rushing it. Like those gummy bears take a couple days to make. So they're, right. you, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's all about getting the moisture level right and having them dry at exactly the right rate. That's why gummy bears, they don't last in the bag, right? You could tell if you've got an old one because they turn hard and the, and the young ones that are just right have the right texture. So, I mean, I would look at, you can look in some of the old books, like, uh, like that one I mentioned a bunch of weeks back, I don't have the name in my head, it's by Kirkland, called Professional Patisserie from like the 18, like early 1900s, because they have all the cornstarch recipes, but there are some modern books that also talk about that. I don't know whether Toro Blanca's book talks about that, but he talks a lot about cornstarch and molding, and it's interesting, interesting stuff. European-based jellies are more based on pectin, but that's more of those fruit slice textures that your teeth sink into. And they're not the same as a gummy bear. Also good, and I think probably easier and faster to make. Yeah, all right, that's cool. The, the one other problem I was having is when I coated them with, with uh, citric acid, I was getting a little bit of bleeding. Do you know anything about that? What do you mean bleeding? You mean like, from your tongue after were, you ate too I guess much? I hadn't dried them properly, but they, uh, they uh, are, and the other thing was I was doing half citric acid, half sugar, because I didn't want to cut it with pure citric acid. I think it was the sugar, when it contacted the jelly, it started uh, leaching water. Hmm. That's interesting. It probably just wasn't. I mean, it, I've never done a coating of a candy like that. I, I, they probably make the candy first and then spray it with something so they can pan it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So they probably have. A, yeah. I, I don't know that for certain. I'm saying that. I'm saying that out loud, just saying it. But I, that's how I would do it, rather than try to control the uh, the, the powder and, and the candy making at the same time. But they, so they toss them in cornstarch or something like that. Uh, well, they mold them in cornstarch, and then they probably they probably have something that they paint paint on the pan. I'm not sure what, like maybe an alcohol, or something, and, and then get it to adhere. But I, I don't know. I'd have to look into it. But the citric acid shouldn't cause you any problems. But go ahead and get some other okay. acids too. Get malic acid. Get tartaric acid. All right. Uh, well, when I go and, and find my uh, gum arabic, I'll uh, I'll look for those too as well. All right. Give us a holler. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. All right. Bye. We're going right. on to our first commercial break on cooking issues. I know it's kind of late I hope I didn't wake you But what I've got to say can't wait I know you'd understand Every time I try to tell you The words just came out wrong So I have to say I love you In a song 
things to say I know you'd understand And every time I tried to tell you Welcome back to Cooking Issues. So that was Jim Croce. We haven't had Jim Croce as our uh, as our middle music before, right, Nastasha? Yeah, we love him. Yeah, we love Jim Croce because I used to listen to it. My, my mom, when I was growing up, used to play it all the time. Me but too. like, she, he has this song where he's like, Nastasha and I always joke about this. He has this song where he's like, I know it's kind of late. I hope it didn't wake you. And then he goes on to like have this like like crappy love poem. Where he's like, I hope I, you know, I just called to say I love you in this song, but like, so Nastasha and I always go through it. We're like, you know, it's the phone's ringing at three a.m. You pick it up, and you're like, ah, who died? Yeah. Who died? Who died? Oh, Jesus! And he's like, oh, I know it's kind of late. You're like, what? What? Jim's snap out of it. Anyway, okay, we have a question from. Let's see which one we're gonna take next. We have a question from Johnny Hunter in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, I have a couple questions about using Activa RM in dry curing meats. Activa RM, uh, for those of you out there, not in the know, is meat glue. The wonderful, wonderful, wonderful product that glues any proteins together. Uh, first, uh, does it work to glue two muscles together and then do a dry cure? He was thinking this might be nice as he was trying to do a dry cured ham without the bone. Uh, it would allow for better uh, shape and, uh, and less air pockets, etc. That's true. The way they do a boneless, uh, like a prosciutto, is they actually cure it bone in and then they debone it and they have a very high pressure press. That presses it into a ham-shaped mold. That's why all prosciuttos are the same shape because they've been crushed into that mold. These are the ones that are boneless. Um, okay, so yes, this would work. Um, this would definitely work. I mean, make sure that you add some. You know, it might help you because you could salt in that interior portion. And so, when you're curing your own ham, a lot of times you'll get taint or lack of cure along the bone line because it's not going in, especially through the fatty areas. And so, this would give you an opportunity to get some of the cure on the inside of the meat, as long as you didn't oversalt it. And then uh, you could still glue even over a light salting there, and you're not going to get a lot of bacterial problems. I mean, the one main problem you're going to have from doing it is you're going to be uh, introducing bacteria into something and then gluing it shut. So you want to make sure that you're killing bacteria right away there so I would definitely put um, some some nitrites nitrates rather or trites I guess ham traits and some salt enough salt to kill whatever ails you on the surface of that because otherwise you're going to be in deep deep doo-doo I don't want you to get anybody sick uh, second question on meat glue was uh, about um, rolling cured bellies. Uh, Tom, he mentions Thomas Keller's recipe in Under Pressure for Rabbit Bacon. I was like, Rabbit Bacon? That's crazy. Rabbit Bacon? That's a pain in the butt. Think of how small the belly on a rabbit would be. But he didn't mean that. He meant rabbit with bacon, not bacon made from the bellies of rabbits, because even Keller's not that decadent to like, <laughs> kill a thousand rabbits for one serving. Although maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't really know the guy, so... Uh, so basically what Keller does is he layers rabbit up with bacon using um, Activa, using meat glue, uh, and, and uh, uh, Johnny's tried this with a couple of different animals, including rabbit and goat, and after he cooks the bellies and sliced them and roasts them in the oven, they come apart. So is there any way so, uh, so, uh, to do it since the meat doesn't separate when it's cooked at a high temperature? Thanks a bunch. So uh, here's the problem. You're pr I read Thomas Keller's recipe in the book, and it's not apparent how much kind of... Uh, meat glue you have to add and he's layering slices of bacon together with like one layer of meat glue you need to make sure first of all when you're gluing um, things that have a lot of fat you're not actually gluing the fat what you're doing is gluing the connective tissue the collagen and the different proteins that form the network of, uh, of the fat before it's rendered which is why you can't glue rendered fat you can only glue, glue what do you call it native fat Native fat? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, b basically, if it's rendered, it, it, it can't be glued. What you are gluing is the stuff that ends up being a chicharron if you were to cook it long enough. That's that protein residue. Okay. So you want to make sure that 
all of it has a thin dusting of meat glue on it. And then even at high temperatures, the stuff won't come apart. If you brutalize it, like you fry it in an oven, sometimes the violence of the frying can make the meat pieces come apart. But the bond itself won't be damaged as long as you have uh, enough meat glue such that um, connected tissue is always touching uh, connected tissue. So I would make sure that you get both sides of any belly that you were doing. You might even want to switch instead of using uh, Activa RM, using Activa GS, which uses gelatin as its bonding agent. It's going to be a little bit stronger of a bond. And also you can paint it on to make sure you're not missing anything. Just don't add too much liquid or, or it's going to be a problem. Uh, Keller also recommends an under pressure using a like, a like a sieve, like a handheld sieve. Don't use that. Use like a cocoa duster because it's going to get a much finer uh, coating. So you should be able to get it to work if you, if you do it. And on a side note, I had a lot of comments on our blog recently coming from nut job wingding freak shows who are anti-meat glue because of some knee-jerk reaction that they think they're going to the butcher and their butcher is serving them some sort of like hacked up piece of hamburger and selling it to them as a whole steak. And it's all based on some crappy, crappy uh, expose in quotes because it's not an expose. It's an expose of something that's not happening on a show uh, in Australia called Today Tonight Show. The show itself has an oxymoronic freaking name, Today Tonight it's a dumb name for a show. Only, only, you know, I don't understand, like, unless you're a listener, in which case, producers, I love you, I love your show, have me on. Uh, but the, basically, it's, it's saying that, like, some of the quotes that are absurd to anyone who's ever used meat glue before are, um, even an expert can't tell that something's been glued together with meat glue. And anyone who's ever looked at a piece of meat uh, before in their lives can tell the difference between a bunch of scraps glued together and foisted off as a whole cut of meat and, uh, and one that's been, you know, that it's a real honest-to-God muscle. So I think they're making a, a kind of tempest in a teapot about a problem that doesn't really exist. And they're also saying how it's a bacterial nightmare. Well, because when you're using meat glue, one of the things you have to be really careful of is that you're taking and you're putting um, things that possibly contaminated with bacteria on the inside of your meat, which before you thought was relatively sterile. Uh, but the trick with that is, is it's not... It's not that that's unmanageable. It's just knowing that's what you're doing. And anyone who's properly trained using meat glue knows that they have to kill that bacteria that they put on the inside. So I encourage all of the listeners of this to go around, find these blog posts with these morons who think they... They also say, it's banned in the EU. Well, it's not banned in the EU. Thrombin-based meat glue is banned in the EU, not transglutaminase, which is from an enzyme. Thrombin's a, a blood clotting factor that's used as a meat... was used as a meat glue is banned in the EU. And it was banned in the, meat, in the EU for dumb, dumb reasons. It was banned because the morons who were doing the legislation couldn't think of a valid use for it because they're not cooks. This is another problem of a non-cook. And they saw too much of a problem where you might do something fraudulent. And so they banned the use of that, but didn't ban the use of the other one, which is more prevalent. The thing that makes me really angry about this is that it's so easy to bind together meats with crappy binding agents like carrageenan and like the way they make dog food. Everyone, when they see a bound piece of meat, thinks it's been bound with, with meat glue. Meat glue is actually an expensive and nice way to bind things together without the use of a lot of fillers and gelling agents, which is how people can rip you off if they really feel like they're going to rip you off anyway. So go out there and smack these people upside the head with some knowledge because they need it. Okay. Sorry. Okay. And from Australia, this is from James. Hey, guys, greetings from Australia. I'm assuming James is not a member of the Australia Today Tonight Show. Hopefully. Hopefully not. He's been enjoying the blog for a while, so it's probably not, and getting into the uh, podcast. So he has a question for the show. He's been struggling with oven spring in in, uh, his bread for two years, and he's stumped. So far, I'm going to be him now. So far, I've managed to work my way through every single problem apart from the uh, vexatious side bust out. So when he's cooking uh, the oven spring, what's happening is instead of going along where he slices the bread, he's getting a burst in the seam uh, along 
along the bottom of the bread and splitting it on the bottom, which is not what he wants to have happen. And he's tried uh, all the different kinds of uh, things you can try, varying his different hydrations from 60 to 85 percent, using autolysis, which is a process where you start the, uh, the, the, the mixing of the flour, knead it a little bit, let it rest for a while, and then, and then knead it again, uh, mixing different batters, making different kinds of starters, different kinds of hydra- hydration, different kinds of mixing, different kinds of flours, etc., etc., different kinds of form, uh, salt ratios, different kinds of risings, different proofing levels, different baking, yada, yada, yada. So he's wondering what the heck is going on. Uh, and so he says that sometimes he now uses a different a steam technique, where it's called steam via ice. Where every everyone who bakes bread knows that that steam formation for for many types of bread, steam formation in the very beginning of bread baking is extremely important. And so he's been trying. Uh, one of the ways is you throw ice in, and it gives you a constant rate of steam because the oven can't evap can't melt and evaporate it all quickly enough. So you have a steam that lasts a little while. Whereas if you just throw water in, a very well vented uh, home oven will just obliterate the steam, and you're not going to get enough steam. So he wants to know uh, what to do. Well, uh, I was going to say that most times when you get a bad burst in the bottom, it's actually because you're using, um, you're not doing a good enough forming technique, assuming that everything else is okay. You're not like giving a good skin to it when you're forming it around, but you say you've tried that. Um, so I would go, I, I, you know, when I have a question, I don't know whether the baking community respects them, but I like going to the Fresh Loaf, which is a blog. Uh, which is pretty interesting. And also there's a kind of a nut, and I appreciate nuts. Um, there's a guy um, named uh, uh, Steve B. And I forget what his, uh, what his uh, blog is, but you can find him, Steve B. And he, he experimented with a lot of crazy stuff, and he found a steamer uh, that is – I also forget the name of the, of the company that manufactures the steamer. But basically what you do is you take a hotel pan. You drill a hole in it. You put it over your bread as soon, like as, soon as you put it on your stone. And then you, you, you take and you rig up a garment steamer with a nozzle and you pipe steam into the hotel pan for like 20 or 30 seconds and then put it in the oven. And then a couple minutes later take it off. And that more closely mimics the steam that you're going to get out of an oven. And I have never used it, but it looks really interesting, something you might want to try. And so, and there's a couple of people on the web now experimenting with these like handheld steamers and hotel pans, upturned hotel pans. So, um, I mean, I wish it was still wintertime. I mean, it kind of still feels like it, yeah. but uh, I wish it was because it's hard for me to do a lot of uh, baking in because my oven is, gets like mighty hot, mighty, mighty, mighty hot. In addition, though, I'm curious about like what the actual mechanism of steam is because it seems kind of confused. People say multiple things that it, like I'm going to have to do more research on the actual – everyone knows that steam at the beginning helps the crust formation. Everyone. But a lot of the scientific explanation seems kind of bogus and I started reading some of the documentation this morning but I didn't have time. So maybe that's something we'll deal with later on a, on a different uh, – on a different who's even what's it. All right? Mm-hmm. So why don't we then take our second commercial break? And while we're going to it, why don't you remember to call in to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues. Operator, well, could you help me place this call? Number on the matchbook is old and faded. She's living in LA with my best old ex friend Ray. Gosh, she said she knew well and sometimes hated. Give me the number if you can't find it so I can call. 
following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune into the Speakeasy every Wednesday at 3 p.m., where host Damon Volte will discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe, with guests ranging from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, and every expert and enthusiast in between. Learn from some of the world's leading experts in mixology, bar history, distillation, and brewing about how we enjoy imbibing today. Again, that's every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. You know, Jim Croce is visiting hell on that operator. Operator's (laughs) just trying to do her job. You know, and he's talking about his best old ex-friend, Ray, who, I admit, is a jerk for running away with his woman. Or maybe the woman ran away with him. Well, it takes two to tango. Mm-hmm. takes two to tango. Dear old, be- oh, best, best old ex-friend, what is it? Best old ex, yeah. Red man. Anyway. And then he ends up not placing the call. Yeah, well, jerk. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, I have good news that I actually did something I said I was going to do, and I ordered an AeroPress coffee so i can finally say what i personally think about the aeropress coffee we've talked about it a million times on the air it only costs 24.95 so i ordered it on amazon and it makes a perfectly fine cup of coffee uh i might use it now as my as my take in my bag uh coffee maker but here's what it doesn't make espresso Mm. (laughs) that's it doesn't make espresso but on an interesting note coffee thing i learned something recently that there's this thing called cup of excellence have you heard of this no cup of excellence so what they do is they get all these people from every different country every different country has its own cup of excellence uh a lot of coffee producing uh, countries and there's a huge competition where they're they're cupped again and again and again and then the winner and they're all these small lots are auctioned off and someone has to buy the whole auction so for instance dallas brothers who is one of the sponsors of the museum thing we did the latte uh, art judging contest gave me a bag of rwanda's 2010 uh, copacama uh, co-op cup of excellence coffee and uh, it sells for a lot more than regular coffee. It's like $30, $30 a pound green. Wow. Green. Green. Wholesale. Green. Uh, and uh, it was very, very good. Cup of Excellence. Go to, to check it out, go to cupofexcellence.org. Anyway, uh, so I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. No? 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 Yes, that's no? interesting. Moderately interesting? All right. You still have about 25 seconds because i got two more questions to answer. To call in your questions, too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Okay. Colin. Good old Colin. Oh, boy. What? This is a not. He said specifically, uh, this has been a cuss free question. Yeah, but it's also a controversial question. It is? All right, well, yeah. let's read it. No, it's not actually weed, it's seaweed. Nastasha only. It, it, I read the first sentence and then I forward it at 6 a.m. to Dave. Yes, that's, that's, what a, happens. That, that's what happens. So she's like, oh my god, he's talking about weed. Seaweed. You know, with Colin, nothing is like what it seems. Uh-huh. Uh, in honor of the, uh, this is Colin speaking, in honor of the upcoming 420 holiday, although 420 is a holiday for me, it's my wife's birthday, but Easter is, is actually Nastasha's birthday, which is 424. Like Jesus. Well, well Jesus, Jesus when he rose born, from the yeah. dead. He reborn. Was reborn. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so this year, <laughs> Nastasha gets Easter. I've had Easter on my birthday before. Yeah? Those, yeah. Jen's had Easter on her birthday before. One of those crazy ones. Anyway, Colin has a question that pertains to weed. Uh, and of course, is there some sort of uh, cannabis-related yeah. holiday? Four twenty is the is the, Jack. You know more. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not Easter. It's some holiday that uh, that us old fogies aren't familiar with. It's been around forever. All right, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Colin has a question about weed. Of course, I'm not really interested in cannabis. Of course you're not. Mm. Uh, it's seaweed that catches your fa- uh, his fancy. Seaweed uh, salad is, uh, uh, is 
freaking awesome with its al dente crunch and ubiquitous sesame dressing. Since I don't speak Chinese, I guess, or Japanese, I've been able to track, I haven't been able to track down good uh, weed to use in a salad. I see the fresh stuff in some Asian groceries, but the sections near the sea cucumbers where nobody bothers labeling stuff in English. A project I've been sitting on for a few years is to try cultivating seaweeds in order to have fresh unlimited supply of weed. I just saw uh, on McGee's uh, On Food and Cooking that says wakame, kombu, and sea lettuce are commonly used in salads. Uh, and so he wants to know if I have any tips, uh, what he should look for in market, or what species make a good salad, any tips on prep, and have I? And since I've used saltwater aquarium before or made them, can, do I have any tips on sourcing and growing some hydroponic weed? Okay, the problem is that a lot of the seaweeds that you use are too big to basically uh, to basically grow in a normal situation. Although things like wakame are. You know, and and you know kelp and all these things are routinely farmed. I mean that's how they do it. Like you very rarely get wild anything anymore. But it's just they're so big that it's hard. It's hard to do. You can gather your own on the coast, which I've done a bunch of times with limited success. Unfortunately, I haven't done any research uh, recently. Back in the day, the the book that you know er, that everyone had was called Cooking with Sea Vegetables by Sharon Ann Rhodes. Unfortunately, it's kind of like and this is nothing against anyone. It's kind of hippy dip, and I'm much more into like straight up you know, killer information and like pictures. And this was, looks like it was written in the seventies or eighties. And I've had it probably, you know, since forever. And it's like all black and white and it's not really up to date. Someone needs to tell me if there's an up to date new, uh, new seaweed book, but how you use a seaweed depends a lot on what, Oh, if you want a good website, it's interesting. Uh, the, the person who made it apparently doesn't want you to find it because it's very hard to find, but it's seaweeds of the Pacific North Northwest by, uh, Brianna Gut, uh, Gutschmidt and her, the website I don't have here, the name of it, but she has, uh, Pendiva forward slash seaweed or something like that. But she has good pictures of all different seaweeds that you can get in the Pacific Northwest and how they taste. Cause she ate them, cool. which is pretty cool. So she has a good list. I recommend you, you, you go to that. Pendiva.com slash seaweed. Wow, Jack's the best. Yeah. Anyway. He's on he, top. He, he's on top, especially because you called him out. I know. I know. So no, it's it's not right. Coherent. It's not right. So not right. Um, so anyway, I suggest you collect your own. I've done it. Some people suggest against collecting your own because once uh, seaweeds have been ripped off of their rocks, you don't know how long they've been batting around in the ocean, and therefore there may be, they might be I don't know, rotting or something like that. But I've never died so far from collecting uh, wild seaweed. Oh, by the way, going back, one thing you can raise in your aquarium by the, uh, is uh, certain varieties of uh, sea lettuce, green laver. You can ra- uh, raise in an aquarium. Uh, it's going to be an expensive proposition, but you, you should try it. And knowing you, you probably will. So you should probably probably give that give that a shot um i think how you treat it depends on what it is so for instance even something like kombu uh, we use it in a salad after we've used it to cure and cook a duck so like nils would have this old recipe where he would wrap a duck breast in kombu because kombu current curing that is awesome right and then after we cooked it we'd peel it off and then we'd slice it finely and then you could eat it and it was really crunchy same thing with wakame if you don't over soak it right it's still got a little bit of crunch you slice it thin and then you can have it as a nice as a nice salad so how you use the seaweed is going to really depend on what state you get it in, you're going to have to refresh it, um, and uh, you know, you got, usually it's dried, so you're going to have to refresh it. If you get it fresh, I would just here's what I would do in general. If you see something in that in that market, just buy the hell out of everything, just buy every damn thing, and then taste it, and then uh, you know, just try to compare pictures on the internet to what you can find because there's a relatively few number of ones that are commercially sold. You know, you know, your wakame, hijiki, uh, arame. 
uh, you know, lavers, noris, uh, different types of kelps. So you should be able to do a mix and match and then remember the characters' uh, names. I remember once I went to Chinatown looking for pig's bladder, which is legal to get in the U.S. And what I did is I went on, uh, I went on Google and translated pig's bladder into, uh, into Mandarin and then printed the characters out and then drew a picture of a pig with its bladder and then pointed to it. And I think I got my point across because they were laughing their, their, their butts off, mm-hmm. but they didn't give it to me, apparently, mm-hmm. because it's illegal here. All right. So, uh, since we don't appear to get any more calls, I w- our last story for the day will be what we're going to do tomorrow. Yeah. We're going to tomorrow uh, eater. Really early. Yeah, it's a little too early for a burger, frankly. But Eater is going to come to my house because I no longer have a kitchen anywhere. We don't have a kitchen in Brooklyn yet, and I don't have a kitchen in uh, the FCI anymore. Uh, so since I'm kitchenless, I'll be cooking it at my house, which actually has a pretty – I mean, I have a sweet kitchen. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. Sweet kitchen? Anyway. Um, so uh, we're, we're supposed to do our version of the ultimate burger. Now, the problem is that so many people have done their versions of the ultimate burger, right? You have the modernist cuisine version of the ultimate burger, which involves uh, a, a lot of steps. You, you know, they, they cook their, their burger for actually for a long time. I'm not a fan of cooking a hamburger for as long as, as they are. I'm not saying I'm not a fan, but it's not for me because, like, certain types of meat can take on a kind of gaming livery note that I don't really – that's not for me in a burger. Like, for me, like, the longest I'm going to want to cook a burger is probably about four hours that's about it uh not tomorrow because i'm not waking up that early no. to cook a burger anyway anyway so like you know i also don't uh like vacuum packing burgers down because i think they get too kind of smashed so i'm a fan the way i like to do it is to take the the meat mixture give it a quick fry to set it and then put it i'm going to grind bacon uh, into it though okay it's delicious right Sounds good. i was thinking I'm, i was going to use a combination of short rib chuck and bacon right grind it I like a real loose pack and relatively thick and then uh, fried uh, quickly just to keep the surface uh, intact. Then I'm going to uh, put it into probably butter or maybe, a, maybe like, a, a, like a, a butter that's been mounted almost like a burr blanc with, uh, with some, some hyper-reduced beef stock. I haven't decided yet. Uh, and then because my wife, right, my, my wife's birthday tomorrow, so I really shouldn't be doing this. It's my wife's because birthday. Because you already did this I already on her birthday. Yeah, yeah, but listen, she's not going to be there. It's going to be in the morning. My wife is flying to Boston tomorrow, so I have all day to fix whatever I do, right? To get a new place. I'm not going to get it. Come on. The place is fireproof. Anyways, I'm going to get, a, I'm going to light, because this is the best way to finish a burger off, right? I'm going to cook it in butter in a bag at about 55 degrees for a couple of hours. I'm going to pull this sucker out. And then I'm going to build a small bed of hardwood coals on the inside of my house under my hood in the mini Weber that I have. I'm going to build the temperature up till it's about the temperature of the surface of the sun such that it's basically melting the Weber into my, into my stove. I thought that's my Weber. Uh, well, I let you have it. You never took it home. It, I bought it and was never reimbursed for it. So, yes, I gave it to you, and I'm going to use it one more time before you take it. You've had a year and a half or more to take it to your house, and you never have. Cooking, I've moved it like three times. Issues. Cooking issues. Yeah, yes, you definitely have cooking issues. So, anyway, I'm going to fire it up in my, in my house, and I'm going to grill, uh, like hyper grill it, basically on the surface of the coal to put a nice crust on it. And then I'm going to do my favorite bun. And here's my favorite bun. It's, it's uh, um, a... Sesame? No, uh, close. Uh, beef on weck style from Buffalo. It's going to be caraway seed and salt on English muffin, homemade English muffin, and I think just regular cheese. I think just regular cheese. What, like American cheese? Yeah, something. I don't know. Maybe Gruyere. You like Gruyere? Mm-hmm. I think Gruyere. And then, uh, and then I'm probably like a, the modernist cuisine do a really cool thing where they, they take and they, they flash infuse a, uh, a tomato with uh, like a vinaigrette or something like that, which is a really good idea. But since it's not tomato season, I can't get a decent tomato. I might just use pickled green tomatoes. 
Mm. Do the pickle and the tomato at the same time. Mm-hmm. I like fresh onions, so I'm going to put some fresh onion on it. Nastasha, give me the give me the stink face. I like grilled onions. Grilled onions, but then I have a freaking grill there. But I don't like I don't. To me, okay, this is a matter of personal opinion. We can grill some onions for you, but to, to me, a grilled onion is in between. It's not a sautéed uh, onion, and it's not. Uh, I mean, it's this in between crap. Raw onions give me nightmares. What do you mean? Like really? Mm-hmm. Like like how so? Why? I don't know. My mom told me. Well. Wow. Okay. Well, the, the, I'm going to leave everyone out there with the image of Nastasha having onion nightmares. And uh, come back next week for Cooking Issues, where hopefully we can discuss some of these <laughs> onion nightmares. <laughs> cooking Issues! <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinemas Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreal.com. Sponsored by Whole Foods Market. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfasts within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today.